Words for Granted is supported by Yabla, language immersion through authentic programming in the language you want to learn. Yabla features modern television, film, and original content by native speakers of Spanish, French, Italian, English, German, and Chinese. Yabla's premier language learning video platform enhances conversational understanding by utilizing custom playback, subtitles, flashcards, and learning games such as Yabla's patented dictation game, Scribe. Stream authentic shows you enjoy and learn at the same time. Try Yabla risk-free for 15 days by going to yabla.com wfg. That's yabla.com wfg. Hey everyone, I'm Ray Bella, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value Words for Granted as a free educational resource, you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash words for granted. You can also support the podcast and access bonus episodes by becoming a member on the Himalaya app. The most recent bonus episode looks at the etymology of the words vandal and vandalism, which derive from the name of an ancient Germanic tribe. Thanks to Justin for his recent contribution. All right, let's get on to today's episode, part four in a series on common English nouns derived from ethnic groups. Episode after episode in this series, we've seen the names of ethnic groups appropriated as common insults. If you've listened to the previous episodes, you might be wondering, where are the words derived from ethnic groups that don't have an unflattering origin story, and why isn't Ray talking about them? Well, the reality is, there really aren't any words derived from ethnic groups that don't have an unflattering origin story. When the name of an ethnic group is given a new meaning by people outside of that group, usually there's a power dynamic at play. This dynamic might be defined by class, race, or prestige. In the words of American activist Stokely Carmichael, quote, those who can define are masters, end quote. Carmichael succinctly implies that language plays a crucial role in how we view the world. Those who are in a position to shape and define the words we use are actually in a position to shape and define the world. A powerful position indeed. In this episode, we'll be looking at the origins of cannibal, a word that originally emerged in Spanish following European contact with the New World. The story of Cannibal follows the same trend of pejoration seen in the previous episodes, and then some. Unlike goth, vandalism, and philistine, words previously examined in this series, at the time of its emergence during the 15th century, Cannibal was not derived from some bygone ancient ethnic group, but rather from a living ethnic group that is today known as the Caribs. The Caribs may or may not have been cannibals in the modern sense of the word. The appropriation of ethnic words like goth, vandalism, and philistine into everyday language shaped cultural opinions about ethnic groups long dead, but the word cannibal shaped cultural opinions about an ethnic group that was very much alive, and those opinions had major consequences on history. As we'll see, European rhetoric built around cannibalism in the New World was used to justify the slavery and genocide of indigenous Americans at the hand of European colonizers. 
That's a pretty wild claim, but I think we'll be able to support it with sufficient evidence. The first appearance of the Spanish cannibales in the written record comes by way of a historical figure familiar to all of us, Christopher Columbus. It appears in a journal entry on November 23, 1492, written during his first voyage to the New World. Here's the short of the story. When Columbus landed on the island of what is today Hispaniola, natives of the Arawak tribe told him about a rival group called the cannibals. Now, that's told in air quotes because obviously they spoke different languages and couldn't understand each other. Cannibals is an anglicization of the Spanish cannibales, which is a hispanicization of a native word that probably sounded something like calinago, one of the names in addition to carib, by which this group is known today. Anyway, according to Columbus's interpretation of the Arawak's accounts, the caribs, or cannibals, were a savage, warring race that ate human flesh. But the long version of the story isn't quite as simple. Although Columbus's account has been taken as fact for much of the last five centuries, recent interdisciplinary scholarship has overturned much of the narrative established by Columbus during his first voyage. Today's episode has two parts. First, we'll look at the evolution of Columbus's understanding of the cannibals in his own words as it unfolds in his journal. Then, we'll look at how Columbus's portrayal of the cannibals was used to justify colonialist ideologies. It's a case study of man's power to shape language, and the power of language to shape history. Again, as Stokely Carmichael says, those who can define are masters. I'm indebted to a paper entitled How Columbus Created the Cannibals for bringing this quote to my attention. So let's jump into Columbus's travel log where the creation of the cannibals takes place. October 12th. Landing on the shores of what is today San Salvador, Columbus encounters a, quote, friendly and well-dispositioned people who bear no arms except small spears, end quote. These natives, called the Arawaks, tell Columbus about a group of rival natives who often fight with them, capture them, and sell them as slaves. As already implied, neither Columbus nor the Arawaks could have conversed with each other, so who knows how this exchange went down. Columbus doesn't talk much about how he and the natives communicated, so take this and all other recorded exchanges between the two with a grain of salt. By the end of the following November, the identity of this rival group will evolve into that of the cannibals, but Columbus has no way of knowing that just yet. In fact, he thinks that the Arawaks are referring not to another indigenous American group, but to henchmen of the Great Khan of China. As you'll recall, Columbus originally set out to find a shortcut to Asia. That misconception is, of course, where the naming of indigenous Americans as Indians comes from. November 4th. The Arawaks share with Columbus another story of a violent neighboring people. Columbus relates, quote, A long distance from here, there are men with one eye, and others with dog snouts who eat men. On taking a man, they behead him and drink his blood and cut off his genitals. End quote. 
These men sound like characters lifted straight out of Homer's Odyssey, but ostensibly, Columbus accepts the natives' account at face value. November 23rd. Columbus arrives on the island of Hispaniola, where the natives yet again share stories about man-eating monsters. Quote, The Indians call this island Bohio and say it is very large and has people there with one eye in the forehead, as well as others they call cannibals, of whom they show great fear. When they saw I was taking that course, they were too afraid to talk. They say that the cannibals eat people and are well-armed. End quote. And there it is, the first recorded use of cannibal. Note that cannibal is not being used here as a generic word for someone who eats human flesh, but rather as the actual name of a group of people, an apparently one-eyed man-eating group of people, but a group of people nonetheless. So who are the Arawakans actually talking about? They're talking about the island Caribs, another prominent ethnic group in the Caribbean islands during the 15th century. In the language of the Arawaks, the name for the Caribs would have been something like Kalino or the Kalingo, which derives from a root word meaning brave ones or strong ones. Columbus speculates that the cannibals come from the island of Caniba or Kanima, but of course, no such island exists. Some have speculated that the transposition of the N sound in Kalino, closer to the front of the word, as it appears in cannibal, is because Columbus believed that the cannibals, or cannibales in Spanish, worked for the great Khan. Khan, cannibales. Or perhaps he just misheard the natives. For those of you trying to build on your linguistics jargon, this transposition of sounds within a word is called metathesis. Let's pause our survey of Columbus's journal to consider two basic questions. Prior to this account of cannibalism, had Europeans ever heard of humans eating humans before, and were there words for this practice? Yes and yes. Before English had adapted the word cannibal, meaning someone who eats human flesh, it had, and technically still has, the word anthropophagus, sometimes rendered anthropophagite. Anthropophagus is a Latin word ultimately of Greek origin that comprises the roots anthropos, meaning human, and phagein, meaning to eat. Other European languages, in addition to English, also had cognates of these same words. It's a fitting etymology, since to my knowledge, the earliest recorded mention of cannibalism, or anthropophagy, is in the histories of the ancient Greek writer Herodotus. The Old English word self-eta, literally self-eater, is an even older English word for cannibal than anthropophagus. Without getting into specific accounts, anthropophagy was a well-documented phenomenon in Europe, particularly in times of economic crises and war. With or without evidence, it was also commonly associated with barbarians outside the borders of civilization. I would say that Columbus's picture of the cannibals in the New World and Europe's eventual reaction to it represents a continuation of this trend. However, Columbus's journals give us a glimpse into a possible alternate history scenario where that picture never gets fully painted. November 26th. Columbus begins to doubt the narrative of the cannibals he's thus far established. Quote, 
The Indians with me continued to show great fear of the course I was taking and kept insisting that the people of Bohio had only one eye and the face of a dog and they fear being eaten. I do not believe any of this. I feel that the Indians they fear belong to the domain of the Great Khan. December 17th. Columbus's doubt reaches a climax and he throws the whole notion of man-eating cannibals out the window. Confidently, he writes, quote, The cannibals are none other than the people of the Great Khan, who must be very near. They have ships that come to these lands to capture these people and take them away. Since the people never return, it is believed that they have been eaten. The Indians showed us two men who had lost some chunks of flesh from their bodies and said that the cannibals had bitten out the pieces. I do not believe this. Each day we understand these Indians better and they us although many times they may have misunderstood us, and vice versa." End quote. For a man who seems to have believed these stories at face value two weeks prior, this is a reasonable concession. This entry on December 17th is the last time Canibales appears in Columbus's Spanish writings, but the story of the man-eating cannibals doesn't end there. As we know, the picture does get fully painted. December 26th. After a conversation with an Arawak leader, Columbus claims that the real name of the cannibals is the Caribs. It's most likely that Caribs, or however the Arawak leader may have pronounced it, was literally the same exact native word that Columbus originally heard, or misheard, as cannibales. Whatever the case, cannibales and caribes are ultimately Hispanicizations of native Arawak words, probably Kalingo or Kalina. This later Hispanicization, Caribes, would pass into languages of the world as the word for Caribs, the ethnic name for an indigenous people of this region. It's also the basis of the names Caribbean Sea and Caribbean Islands. By the way, is Caribbean more correct than Caribbean? Caribbean is the older and more ubiquitous pronunciation, but beginning in the 1930s, Caribbean began appearing in dictionaries as an alternate pronunciation, allegedly with British origins. In Castilian Spanish, that is, the Spanish spoken in Spain, Caribes is still used, politically incorrectly, as a derogatory word meaning savage or coarse-mannered person, a perfect example of how language can preserve old prejudices. Anyway, from journal entries after December 26th, Columbus now uses the word Caribs to refer to people he previously believed were called the cannibals. The story continues. January 13, 1493. Columbus believes he finally has met the Caribs, formerly known as the cannibals. After docking at a different shore in Hispaniola, he and his men come upon a native man who is, quote, much uglier in the face, end quote, than the others they've met which leads Columbus to an overreactive conclusion that, quote, he is one of the Caribs who eat men, end quote. Remarkably, the ugliness of this man's face does not only convince Columbus that the man is a Carib, but also that the Caribs do in fact eat human flesh. So much for that doubt that he threw out the window a few weeks earlier. For the record, it's likely that this ugly man belonged to another indigenous group called the Siguayos, not the Caribs. Shortly after meeting this ugly man, 
a fellow native tribesman attacks Columbus's men over a trading disagreement. This is notable because thus far, none of the natives have attacked the European explorers. After the skirmish, Columbus writes, quote, Without doubt, the people here are evil, and I believe they are from the island of Caribe, and that they eat men, end quote. He writes this, of course, without having seen them eat men. He just met an ugly person. In later journal entries, Columbus obsesses over finding the island of Carib, overridden with its man-eating inhabitants, but the reality is the whole notion of the island of Carib and their flesh-eating savagery is a figment of Columbus's imagination. Eventually, he decides it's too out of reach and too dangerous to go to Carib, and he instead returns back to Spain, whose queen Isabella commissioned his voyage to the New World. Next, we'll look at how Columbus's portrayal of the cannibals impacted world history. But first, a word from today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Yabla. Yabla is an online language learning platform that uses video content in conjunction with additional tools like flashcards, games, informative articles, and more to help you get on track to fluency. Yabla's video library contains over 1,000 videos for each of the languages it offers. Chinese, Italian, Spanish, French, German, and English. For the past few weeks, I have been using Yabla to brush up on my Spanish, which admittedly isn't great, but I'm remembering a lot of what I've forgotten over the years, while also internalizing new words, expressions, and grammar. Tal vez algún día hablaré bien español. You can watch Yabla videos with bilingual subtitles, English-only subtitles, or no subtitles at all. You can toggle between the subtitle settings mid-video, and each word in the subtitles is hyperlinked to a bilingual dictionary, so you can look up new words with one click. You can download full transcripts of the videos you watch, leave comments, view others' comments. The list of features goes on and on. I particularly like their catalog of articles about everything ranging from grammar usage to idioms. These articles usually have accompanying videos and audio clips demonstrating the discussion topic, so you can get an authentic sense of the whys, what's, and hows of everyday speech. The best way for you to see what Yabla has to offer is to try it yourself. Try Yabla risk-free for 15 days by going to yabla.com slash WFG. That's yabla.com slash WFG, like words for granted. I've linked to it in the show notes, and you can also find a link on my website. Okay, back to the show. From our overview of Columbus's journal, it's apparent that he's not a reliable narrator. So, is there any real basis for his claims that the Caribs ate human flesh? Yes and no. It's a topic up for debate, and I'm certainly not the right guy to settle it, but here's a brief consideration of the evidence. English, Dutch, and French accounts of their encounters with Caribs are consistent with certain details referring to funerary rites involving ritual cannibalism. But these Europeans were inconsistent in their classification of the different groups of indigenous people, so it's possible that these descriptions actually refer to non-Carib indigenous groups who engaged in forms of cannibalism. The main reason to cast this doubt is because recent archaeological and DNA studies of Carib burial grounds have actually found zero evidence to support that a Carib diet involved human flesh. Whatever the case may be, we're definitely certain that the Caribs didn't eat human flesh sandwiches for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. 
That kind of cannibal diet has never been recorded anywhere in the world, but reading Columbus's accounts, that is the kind of impression that one gets of the Caribs. Even though the veracity of Carib cannibalism is debated among experts, it's not a debate that really matters to our story, because what we're interested in is how the word cannibal, with all of its evocative baggage and graphic connotations, was used as a free pass to justify colonization and enslavement. On his voyage returning to Spain, Columbus wrote a letter to his commissioner, Queen Isabella, covering his findings in the New World. It was reprinted ubiquitously throughout Europe, creating the Europeans' first impression of the New World. In modern terms, we would say that his letter went viral. Contrary to finding one-eye monsters, as some Europeans had expected, Columbus writes, quote, Thus I have found no monsters, nor heard a report of any, except on an island Carib, which is the second at the coming into the Indies, and which is inhabited by people who are regarded in all the islands as very fierce and who eat human flesh. End quote. Several paragraphs later, he promises that on his next voyage, he will bring back numerous gifts such as spices, cotton, gold, and, quote, slaves, as many as they shall order, and who will be from the idolaters. End quote. Now, Idolaters does not refer to all indigenous peoples, but specifically to the cannibalistic Caribs. We know this because elsewhere, he says that the Arawaks, whom he calls the good Indians, quote, do not hold any creed, nor are they idolaters, end quote. Queen Isabella was originally against the enslavement of any New World natives because it conflicted with her Christian ideals. But the moral degeneracy of the man-eating Caribs, as portrayed by Columbus, created a sort of moral loophole by which Christianizing, colonizing, and apparently enslaving the natives could be for the good of their own ultimate salvation. A convenient situation, since the profit from idolater slaves would help recoup the massive losses incurred by Spain's New World voyages. Columbus was expecting to find hordes of gold and... He didn't. In his letter from the second voyage to the New World in 1494, Columbus no longer refers to the Caribs as Caribs, but switches back to calling them cannibals. From this point forward, the New World man-eaters are referred to by Columbus and his colonial successors as cannibals. We've seen that word transform from what was originally an ethnic designation of the people of the non-existent island of Carib into a catch-all term for all indigenous Americans who allegedly eat human flesh, which, in Columbus's second letter, seems to be a lot of them. Suddenly, the cannibals are everywhere. Quote, As amongst all these islands, those inhabited by the cannibals are the largest and the most populous. I have thought it expedient to send to Spain men and women from the islands which they inhabit, in the hope that they may one day be led to abandon their barbarous custom of eating their fellow creatures. End quote. Given that Columbus didn't meet a single carib or cannibal on his first exploration of a handful of islands, should we believe him when he says that they've become the most populous group of natives? Probably not. When he says sending men and women from the island to Spain, what he's really saying is to sell them as slaves. 
Again, the over-exaggeration of New World cannibalism and the sudden increase in cannibal populations are both convenient avenues toward profit. Of course, this economic angle is never blatantly expressed. Later in his letter, Columbus actually takes a righteous attitude toward the prospect of New World slavery. Quote, For the good of the souls of the said cannibals, and even of the inhabitants of this island, the thought has suggested itself to us that the greater the number that are sent over to Spain, the better. End quote. So, in 1503, just short of a decade after Columbus's first voyage, Queen Isabella decreed, quote, for the present, I give license and power to all and sundry persons who may go by my orders to the islands and tierra firme of the ocean sea discovered up to the present, as well as to those who may go to discover other islands and tierra firme, that if said cannibals continue to resist and do not wish to admit and receive to their lands the captains and men who may be on such voyages by my orders, nor to hear them in order to be taught our sacred Catholic faith and be in my service and obedience— they may be captured and taken to these kingdoms and domains and to other parts and places to be sold. End quote. So, with this decree, the Spanish crown had essentially enshrined Columbus's ethnographic judgments into law, to quote scholar Neil Whitehead. Drawing on Columbus's writings, the public perceived cannibals as morally degenerate and subhuman. They could get behind the argument of colonizing them for the good of all civilization— through modern hindsight, this argument might seem like a shallow cover-up for blatant colonial exploitation, but perhaps Queen Isabella really did buy into Columbus's cannibals. I suggest this because she actually went out of her way to legally protect all non-cannibal groups in the New World from enslavement. I wouldn't exactly call this merciful or enlightened because we can't be sure of her motivations, but what I can say, without a doubt, is that defining who was and was not a cannibal became a political affair with tangible economic consequences, since the profit from slavery was tremendous. Again, Stokely Carmichael's quote rings true. Those who can define are masters. In 1518, Rodrigo de Figueroa, a Spanish judge with plenary powers, was given the task of officially defining the cannibals, and drawing on, naturally biased, Spanish testimonies, he settled upon characteristics such as eating human flesh, practicing sodomy, and general barbarity. It's hard for me to get my head around exactly what the word cannibal meant at this point in history. What's for certain is that it had expanded beyond an ethnic name for the Caribs. For a while, it had functioned as a new word for anthropophagus, again, someone who eats human flesh. That's what it means today, but at this particular juncture in history, cannibal was legally defined as a catch-all term for barbarians whose ways of life defied natural law as ordained by God. This bit about natural law comes from Pope Innocent IV's writings on cannibalism and the New World. This broad and unverifiable classification made it easy for Spanish explorers to indiscriminately define any indigenous Americans as cannibals when it was conducive to making a buck on slave trade or labor. According to one Martyr de Angleria, every New World native was a cannibal. Thus, every New World native was capturable, sellable, and profitable. We can see an example of the fluidity of cannibal as a legal classification in the history of Trinidad. 
Initially, the entire Trinidadian population, comprising both Caribs and Arawaks, was classified as cannibal, a classification determined by Spanish colonists in Santo Domingo who needed a stronger indigenous workforce. The cleric Bartolomé de las Casas, Spain's officially appointed protector of Indians and champion of indigenous Americans' rights before such a concept existed, revoked the Trinidadians' legal status as cannibals based on a lack of evidence to justify the claim. But over a decade later, when colonists in Trinidad were unable to cash in on the abundance of gold that they thought they'd find there, the natives of Trinidad were legally defined as cannibals again, which legally sanctioned their enslavement and allowed colonists to make a profit from the island in the absence of gold. A near-identical fate unfolded for the natives of the Pearl Islands, including Coche, Cubagua, and Margarita, among others. Over the 16th century, New World colonialism spread throughout Europe, and so did the word for cannibal. In the 1550s, it was adopted in English as a word for someone who eats human flesh, usually in reference to New World natives, but a few decades later it acquired its more generalized sense. The name of Shakespeare's Caliban, a half-man, half-monster character from 1610's The Tempest, derives from an English variant pronunciation of cannibal, briefly popularized by the writings of English explorer Richard Hycliffe. The European discourse around the word cannibal changed the world. Through genocide, forced assimilation, slavery, and other acts of colonialism, you could argue that this single word, cannibal, is responsible for the death of entire indigenous American languages, unrecorded languages whose words and grammars will never get back. Indeed, language can shape the world, and sometimes, for worse, those who define it are the masters. All right, well, on that happy note, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I certainly learned a lot and enjoyed putting it together. If you're a regular listener and you want to help me keep this boat afloat, you can make a monthly contribution at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted, or you can become a member of Words for Granted on the Himalaya app. I also encourage you to leave a rating and review on whatever podcast player you use, because those really help the show grow, and they give me feedback about what I can do to make the show better. I'm on Twitter at, at wordsforgranted, and Facebook as wordsforgranted, and you can email me directly with questions, comments, and concerns at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. Have a great day. I'll talk to you soon.